yeah, I don't know. I, I, I know there's a lot of those different, um, you know, content networks and studios, maker studio, stuff like that. Um, and just, you know, figuring out how they work. I just saw this documentary called like, uh, generation like, or something like that. Uh, and it was basically all about this kind of stuff, you know, turning Tumblr into this monetized platform, how marketers are buying into things like YouTube and Facebook and, you know, kind of taking the data people are putting up about themselves and turning into, you know, profit. That was really, really interesting. So that was, yeah, it's interesting where the whole industry is going. Soon we're going to see Facebook start monetizing things. They did see that they did say they're experimenting with monetization. That could be cool. Yeah. I think the whole face of advertising is changing. But maybe that'll have to be a topic on an upcoming podcast um, because it definitely is a massive shift in the way that advertising is purchased and advertising is consumed, certainly by the you know the under twenty crowd. Um, just really yeah. interesting. But anyway, uh, this is the ninth episode. Eight. Eighth. I think it's eight. This is the eighth episode of the We Geeks podcast uh, here in early April, just past. Uh, April Fool's Day, we all survived, which was great. Uh, and this, I hate that day. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, one of the easiest and fastest ways to set up uh, your very own custom website. It's like eight bucks a month. Actually, I just started um, a website for my dad earlier this week uh, on Squarespace, and he's got just—it's just a lot of information. Think of it as a blog, but for like a scholar. So it's very uh, difficult to read heavy content and a lot of it that needs to be indexed and organized and authors and topics and historical documents and all kinds of things like that. There's actually going to be a number of blogs feeding into the Squarespace site that are then, uh, you know, sort of the data is being aggregated in there and it's being spit out on all custom pages. And, you know, if, if we find photos or paintings in some cases of authors, those are going onto the site and everything needs to be automatically updating whenever he adds new content, all the indexes need to update on the site. And we've really been able to set it all up with Squarespace. It's actually pretty cool. It's the first time I built a site like this for Squarespace, but quite a bit different than your normal, just I'm going to set up a portfolio for my web design or my my photography business or whatever. And it's worked uh, worked like a charm. And uh, it's Yeah, it's cool. really... It's actually it actually surprised me when I first used it for the first time because you can have something as simple as a very simple blog that you just write and it publishes to the world or you can have something as advanced as like a portfolio with in-stream videos and audio and cover pages and all these different things and they have templates for all of that stuff and it's all mobile friendly which as we mentioned a million times is going to be so important. I believe this month, actually, Google is going to start, maybe at the end of this month, they're going to start ranking mobile-friendly or mobile-optimized websites higher in Google search than non-mobile-optimized mm. websites. So it's so important. Whether you're on Squarespace or some other service, you should totally get your website mobily optimized. Yeah. But if you do want to hop on the Squarespace bandwagon, you can save 10%. And as Nathaniel mentioned earlier, it's eight bucks a month and you get a, f- a free domain name if you purchase a year in advance. And you save 10% with the coupon code WEGEEKS. And of course, it helps support this podcast. Yeah. And before we move on to the good stuff, if you want to further support the podcast, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash WEGEEKS. And a big thank you to our $25 patron, Valdis, or Valdis. I always pronounce it wrong, and I'm sure I'm still pronouncing it wrong. And you can check him out 
at camis, K-A-M-I-S, 1232.deviantart.com. Well, so there you go. Valdez, we appreciate it. Uh, I guess moving on, jumping right into the news and everything, uh, we've got a number of kind of interesting stories this week. Uh, ESPN just redesigned their site for the first time since 2009, um, and it was funny because I, I mean, I visit ESPN's site a few times a week, um, but I, would, I hadn't seen this redesign, and I was looking at a different design blog, and I saw that they had mentioned it. I thought, they haven't redesigned their site, but I guess it was something they were rolling out over the course of... Uh, a certain amount of time and I hadn't seen the update yet. And then, you know, the day after I saw this article, the update actually triggered or whatever. Um, it's the first time ESPN's redesigned their site uh, since 2009. So it's been a number of years since they redesigned it. And one of the interesting things I first, in the, the, the thing that struck me right off the bat, well, there's a couple things, but one of them was it's a very modular looking site and what I mean by that is there's a lot of just sort of blocks that have been designed and sort of clicked together um, which I think is very much where web design is sort of headed mainly or largely in part to the uh, responsive web design side of things where everything needs to be sort of moving and adjustable and shiftable do you know what I'm saying um, so it, 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 it's a very easy to sort of restructure site. You can take the, the blocks to the left that are displaying scores, uh, and, and those can maybe slide underneath or whatever, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't really toyed with the responsive nature of the website, but it very much looks like a responsive website. Uh, and the other thing is there are a lot of very short form articles. Um, that being, there's a whole sort of now column, uh, just very, very current things that are going on, um, you know, ESPN on Snapchat, um, and, and a lot of things where it's a photo and just like a paragraph, um, you know, almost like a Twitter feed. In fact, I think there are some, some things right off Twitter in this uh, column now that I'm taking a closer look at it. But it's very short form article stuff where you can look at it, consume the data quickly, and of course, an option to share it um, across, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, or even email it to a friend, things like that. So it's definitely yeah. No one. No, go ahead. No one nowadays. No one nowadays actually reads articles. They just want to see very short snippets of things on Twitter. You know who's trending in the basketball world or who scored eight million points or whatever it might be. Yeah, and I mean I've even noticed it in things like Facebook comments. Sort of the you know I'm I'm almost like every time I write a long Facebook comment, which doesn't happen very often, but every time it does. Um, it's just sort of like, well, I spent that time writing it. Who knows who's going to actually read the entire thing? You know, we're just talking about a comment on Facebook. It's sort of like the most effective comments are those just very witty one-liners, that kind of thing, where somebody seems to be able to just get the point across, get in, get out, and get on their way. Yeah, I'm actually surprised it took ESPN this long, 2009 till now. What is that? Like six, six years, right? Yeah. yeah if I can do my math. Um, took them six years to read. I mean, nothing was severely wrong with our website before. It definitely worked and it definitely got the point across. You can see the scores at the top and all that fun stuff. But it, I don't believe it was very mobile friendly. Just looking at the old, a screenshot of the old design, I can't imagine it was very mobile friendly. Mm. And like you said, the new design is all modular. There's blocks all over the place. So if you're on a mobile site, those blocks can easy, easily be moved down to the bottom below other ones, or they can be hidden completely. And it, it actually does look very nice. I, so many websites redesign their layouts and design, and it just looks terrible. But ESPN, I think, did a pretty good job. 
you know, maybe they'll keep this one for another six years. If there's someone like me who redesigns their website every six months, they might they might uh, run out of developers. Yeah, no, I, I just thought I thought it was a pretty nice job overall. Um, it has like a little bit of a European feel to it or something. I don't know. Just um, you know, just for the amount of content that that ESPN is throwing at you. Um, I think they, they did a pretty remarkable job um, I think so. handling that. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, next up, there is actually, Howard, this is right out in Colorado, a right-to-record bill, uh, which is going to address a citizen's right to film the police. Uh, there have been a lot of issues. I don't know. Some of you who aren't living in the United States, um, I'm not sure what it's like in Europe um, and other areas of the world, quite frankly. Um, but in, in the United States, in theory... It is legal to film law enforcement. Um, however, obviously, you don't want to be a complete idiot and you know stand there and you know right you know get in their faces and things like that. Especially after they've told you, hey, you know, stop recording us. There's whatever going on here. It's an active and open uh, and live crime scene or whatever. Uh, but anyway, this this bill is uh, set to essentially enforce a civil fine, which I think is an important uh, distinction because most police officers, when it comes to destroying and damaging things, they have sovereign immunity. Um, and if they uh, inflict some damage on a person or property, typically that's just picked up by you know the local government, municipality, whatever, state government, depending on the level of, of what's going on. And, and those, those uh, bills and costs, obviously they're not personally having to pay for them. A civil fine sounds like that's something that affects them as a civilian or a citizen of the state um, rather than uh, a, a, uh, somebody who works for the state. Um, so a $15,000 civil fine if a law enforcement officer seizes or damages uh, a citizen's recording equipment or even interferes with somebody trying to record their actions. Uh, they're acknowledging that it is unacceptable for an officer to demand a camera or a camera card containing footage or images. Uh, Joe Salazar, a... Uh, Democrat from Thornton, Thornton, Colorado, excuse me, says it takes a very special person to be a police officer. We want to honor them, but at the same time, we have a few bad apples who need to be aware that their conduct now has major, major consequences. Um, so That's really interesting because very rarely do we hear chiefs or police officers actually admit that there are a few bad apples. And We've definitely seen it over the last year or mm -hmm. two that there have been one or two, maybe you know, a few more bad apples, I guess, police officers who have been abusing their power and doing things they shouldn't be doing, sometimes resulting in death. And it just kind of gets passed along mm -hmm. as, you know, well, they're, they're police officers and they're just protecting the law. But in reality, they are doing, they are abusing their power. And I think you can't really nail this on all police officers because it's only a few of them who are doing this but of course the media is picking this up and they're making it seem like all police officers are in the wrong but i do think that it should be our right to record police officers but as you said you shouldn't get in their face and kind of get in the way of what they're doing but it kind of puts them in line they kind of know in the back of their heads that someone might be recording me so i probably shouldn't abuse my powers like some other police officers have. Been. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty obvious when you're. I mean, even if you get pulled over, right? I mean, if you have a GoPro in your dashboard, fine. If you pull your cell phone camera out and stick it in the cop's face, it's probably not going to go very well. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's going to piss him right. off. Right, and it doesn't it doesn't give the right it doesn't give the officer the right to tase you. Um, but yeah. you know he's probably not going to let you off without a ticket. That kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, then the sad thing about it is the vast majority of police officers are pretty great people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but of course, that doesn't have the viral edge to it. So when you get the one cop who flies off the handle, you know, who actually might be a, a decent cop, but flies off the handle and beats the living daylights out of somebody. And, you know, I guess we can argue whether or not that's a quote unquote decent person anyway. But I think, you know, you have to understand when you're, you know, your whole training and your your job for, you know, who knows, 5, 10, 15 years is to dominate other people. You know, I mean, police officers are always trying to put them in, themselves in a position where they are very much in charge. So when you have that that mentality, you know, sometimes having a bad day will cause you to fly off the handle and do terrible things. Um, I thought one of the most refreshing things about this was just sort of, like you said, you don't hear people um, sort of take on the responsibility of this kind of stuff very often. It's always, we've suspended that officer with pay. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. a pending investigation, and then you kind of never hear anything about it. They wait till it drops from the news, and then everything goes back to normal. So kind of cool to see that, um, and maybe other states will follow suit. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting because, you know, as a photographer, um, there have definitely been times where I've been pushed away from crime scenes, um, and even several times where... You know, people demanded that I give my, um, you know, my, my, my camera card or whatever to which I've responded. You, know, you can pound sand. I'm not, I'll eat this, I'll eat <laughs> this thing before I give it to you because I'm taking the photos. Um, I mean, I remember one time in particular, I snuck into a crime scene. Uh, it was actually a mile away from my house. There was a bomb that was found. Uh, it was late at night and everybody was very hush hush about it. So I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go figure out what's going on. And I snuck into this crime scene and I mean, I was, you know, 30 yards from this package. I didn't even realize what was going on. I didn't realize until afterward. Uh, well, actually, until there was like the little Wally robot that came out around the corner and was like poking and prodding it. And then mm. I kind of got up and got out of there. Got, <laughs> I should probably move. Got, well, just got to a slightly safer position. I was still within the crime scene, though. Um, and there's, you know, like the big Hulkamania kind of guy, you know, walking around with the suit and everything. Um and then it was afterward when the police saw me in this parking lot. Actually, it was a Walmart parking lot. You know, a bunch of officers came over and approached me. First a firefighter, then like, you know, the big police chief who's screaming and yelling at me. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, no, you don't have the right to take my stuff. I'm not giving it to you. You know, I'm not taking pictures. You don't have proof that I was back in the crime scene. They didn't see me when I was in there. I was outside of the crime scene when, when they actually saw me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's that kind of stuff where it's just like, you know, no, I mean, I have it. I'm allowed to take pictures, you know. I mean, the citizens have a right to know what's going on. After all, it's their money that are paying your salary. So it's just interesting to see something like that um, come across the table. So Yeah, we, we are such different people. If I was in that situation, well, first of all, I probably wouldn't have ventured into a crime scene. But if I did and someone approached, approached me, especially this big police officer with bulging muscles i would have probably broke down and cried and just threw my camera at him and ran (laughs) uh but anyway moving on from uh taking pictures of the police uh nikon has unveiled a mirrorless camera system the nikon 1j5 I'm guessing is the way that we're going to have to say this, right? Nikon yeah, 1 J5. Yeah, I guess J5. so. It's kind of strange. Um, it's a brand – I'm just going to read through the specs here. I kind of printed out. Brand new mirrorless camera, boasts 4K video and incredibly fast continuous shooting, uh, all in a camera that's very much hand-holdable. Uh, and it, it's going to hit the market around 500 bucks with a lens included. I think it's like a 10 to 30 millimeter mm. lens included. That's pretty good. Yeah, which is pretty good for a, a little fi- a, a little mirrorless camera. I mean, I, I would love to get my hands on it and see how good it is quality-wise. I mean, I don't know if you've ever used a mirrorless camera uh, or had have any experience I with have. them. 
Um, and I, I have. I used the Sony A7S, I believe it was. I rented it from Lens Rentals for about a week, and they are amazing cameras, and they're so so quiet, which is amazing. Right. Um, and you know, there's obviously a lot of times where you're trying to shoot something, and you just don't want your camera to make any noise, and these ones are virtually silent. But the interesting thing about this Nikon 1J5, and you'll get into more of the specs in a second, yeah. but it boasts that it has 4K video recording, and you know, of, of course, all the other things that most cameras have, all for $500, mm -hmm. but when you start really looking into it, the 4K video recording only records at 15 frames per second, which is pretty much useless unless you're I mean, I really don't see when anybody would want to watch a 4K video at 50, sorry, 15, I wish it was 50, but 15 frames per second. It yeah. kind of goes back to what we were talking about in previous podcasts where companies are starting to throw in this technology just to put in the marketing material. Mm -hmm. But if you really look into it, like that monitor we talked about a few weeks ago, it might have been a 4K monitor for like $200 yeah. or something. Yep. But if it's only like 30 hertz or whatever it was, it's completely useless. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it sort of reminds you of the old megapixel wars, which I guess are probably still even going on to a certain yep. extent. It's like this new video resolution war where Ultra HD and 4K are the hot buzzwords and, you know, you're not cool if you don't have 4K. So, and I can see like, you know, I can see my aunt, you know, buying a camera like this and be like, you know, it shoots in 4K. <laughs> and I'd be like, number one, you don't even have a TV that can support 4K. You probably don't even know what 4K is. And oh, by the way, you know, you're going to be better off going with the 720p, you know, that you can get 30, 60, 120 frames per second than 15 frames per second at 4K. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I, I kind of hate when camera companies do it. I understand uh, at a certain level why they do it. Um, but yeah, it's just useless. Um, so the camera will take a variety of lenses, not current. Nikon DSLR lenses, uh, but there's a line of smaller mirrorless camera lenses. Uh, it's got a 20.8 megapixel BSI CMOS sensor. I'm not sure what the BSI stands for, but there's got to be something. I don't know if that's a, a, a normal Nikon <laughs> I'm sure I can thing. make up a few, yeah. a few words to... Uh... <laughs> ISO ranges between 160 ISO and 12,800 ISO. Uh, in true Nikon fashion, it looks like it's got an amazing focusing system, 171 detection points uh, where the, the viewfinders can be looking for edges of contrast, uh, 20 frames per second shooting with full autofocus turned on. But if autofocus fixes on the first shot, it can go up to 60 frames per second, which is insane. That's pretty good. I mean, That's yeah, insane. we're talking yeah. you could go shoot like a majors golf tournament and get, you know, that entire golf swing and get the exact shot you want. Um, but I mean, even things like, I mean, if you were to buy this camera for your kids, uh, track meet or swim meet or something where there's going to be fast movement and you have a split second to get a shot, right, when somebody's coming out of the water or crossing the finish line or whatever, you know, you 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 know you nail down, even at 20 frames per second, um, you're going to have... Uh, a pretty good time getting that shot. So that's actually pretty impressive. Uh, it also has a very short shutter lag, uh, which Nikon is boasting as the shortest shutter lag in the world uh, for this class of camera. Uh, the camera also includes a three inch touchscreen on the rear. It's got the ability to pull out and tilt and adjust and swing, things like that. Uh, as mentioned, it has 4K video, which only records at 15 frames per second. Uh, total disappointment. Um, not really total disappointment, kind of total annoyance, right? Because... Um, we wouldn't have been sitting here looking at this camera thinking, oh boy, it would have been a great camera if only it had 4K capability, right? I mean, right. now... I think the camera's great even without the 4K video recording. Especially for the price. 
I mean, yep. now if it had 4K video at even 24 frames per second or 30 frames per second, we'd be talking about a camera that I would seriously be considering getting um, oh, totally. just for, you know, like YouTube stuff. I mean, it'd be amazing to have a little camera, even if it was 800 bucks um, that had, you know, f real 4K option. Uh, so 4K video at 15 frames per second, uh, 1080p video can shoot up to 60 frames per second, 720p can go up to 120 frames per second. Um, there's even a pretty cool time-lapse feature in this camera which allows you to, you know, set and shoot your time-lapse shot. It's got an internal intervalometer. Um, but it looks like it also lets you take those images and stitch them together into a finished time-lapse video or time-lapse clip uh, in the camera. Normally, you know, obviously you would take the images out of the camera and put them together. Uh, so that looks pretty cool. Um, and I may be total, uh, an absolute idiot when it comes to these, you know, less than prosumer and professional level cameras. But I don't know of another or, or a professional camera that allows you to do that. Maybe that is a feature that's included in a lot of these uh, lower level cameras. Uh, but it's just something that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, the camera also includes your Wi-Fi and NFC for connecting to other smart devices, which is really great. Obviously, if you're a big Instagrammer, you shoot with this camera. Bing the picture right over to your cat or your phone and post it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything you would normally do via your phone. So that's a really cool feature. Um, Nikon has had that for a little while and, and a few of their DSLRs um, and things like Fuji Films, mirrorless cameras, they have that as well. And I'm sure a, a plethora of other cameras. Uh, it's also available in silver and black, silver and white, or all black colors. And it's supposed to be available by the end of April 2015. That's not too bad. Yeah, the whole mirrorless camera, they're definitely advancing, but. And it, the Nikon J, sorry, the Nikon One J Five, the tongue twister. Yeah, uh, it definitely seems like an amazing camera and one that I would consider if the 4K recording was like you said, 30 or even 24 frames per second. Right. I would consider it, but at the moment, I probably I'm not at the point where I want to give up my Canon camera grab a new camera and get all new lenses. But again, for 500 bucks with a lens, it's really not that bad. One thing I do like about the Sony camera, the A7S and I guess the A7SR or whatever it was, yeah. is that they do offer adapters so I can take my Canon lenses that I have right now and pop them right onto the Sony A7S, which is amazing. You're definitely not gonna find that from a Nikon camera. You're definitely not gonna find that from a Canon camera. Um, so if I were to consider a, mirror, a new mirrorless camera, I would probably go to Sony at the moment. But again, for 500 bucks, I would consider buying that as just an extra camera that I would carry around, something nice and small right. that I can take with and me. And it looks, it's a beautiful looking camera. I mean, it oh, looks it really cool. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of the same with you. And I mean, I was talking to a buddy of mine who shoots some mirrorless stuff and he said, you know, he's not quite ready to make the switch to mirrorless because he still feels like mirrorless doesn't have the depth and the that that same, you know, dynamic range and richness of your, your normal DSLR. Um, and now he shot entire weddings with mirrorless cameras. Um, so he's really taken them out and driven them. Um, and that, I mean, that was kind of his take because I know there's a guy at Vetter uh, in South Africa, I believe is where he is, who has started shooting weddings with the Fuji line, uh, like the Fuji X-T1s, mm. which is sort of Fuji's mirrorless camera that takes a variety of different lenses. Um, it's a really incredible camera system on top of that. Um, and this is the, the Fuji that, that my buddy has. And I was, so I was asking him about it. Um, and that was kind of the feedback that he gave me was just that it doesn't have that same richness, that same depth that your normal DSLR would have. So he wasn't quite ready to make the switch. But of all 
the mirrorless cameras, um, to your point, Howard, Sony definitely seems like they have the the flagship. You know what I mean? The the highest end, the biggest, the most professional style cameras. And I mean, I think that even holds true if you just look at the camera. It looks more like something um, that would be appropriate to take onto a major set that you're shooting um, or, or a bigger event like a wedding or a big corporate event or whatever. Um, and they, they, you know, I mean, obviously we've seen all of the, you know, craziness about Sony's sensors. They have great sensors. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It seems pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sony might be the way to go when it comes to, you know, a real uh, mirrorless, I keep saying wireless, a real mirrorless solution, at least at this point. So yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. Again, I having used the Sony, uh, a7S great camera. I've heard great things about the Fuji cameras. Nikon seems to be getting into it. I still can't believe Canon, even though they have mirrorless cameras, all I've heard from the people who have used the Canon mirrorless cameras is they're absolute garbage. Yeah, and it's so disappointing. Yeah, I know. I at Canon, I don't, I don't know what their deal is or what they're kind of what they're waiting for. But yeah, I mean, you would think that they would at least. I mean, they seem so eager to continually release new cameras. You would think they would. Uh, pour a little bit into the mirrorless side of things, especially since that looks like that's really um, where things are heading. But, I mean, I don't know. Yep. What do I know? So the next uh, story up is actually something you brought to my attention, Howard. So I'll, I'll hand this one off to you. Yeah, this one's kind of interesting, and it continues with our whole photo talk. And it was written by a guy named Alex Wild over at Petapixel. And he basically responded to people who are stealing his photos online, which happens to a lot of photographers. It happens to me with my videos. It happens to you probably with videos and photography. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I would say kind of anyone who creates digital content, right? I mean, it's susceptible true. to be stolen and there's, there's always somebody out there who's ready to take. <laughs> yeah. And he posted a Q and a, I guess he posts us on his website. He also posted on this article and it's directed at those people who steal his stuff because a lot of times once his lawyer passes along a legal notice, he is not allowed to speak directly to that person who stole his work. And it's a whole big long Q&A, but it's actually very interesting reading this thing. And I guess a lot of people get defensive when a photographer comes to them and says, or their lawyers come to them and says, listen, you're stealing my work. You don't have a license to use this work. My licenses are, you know, between $200 and $400. I expect you to not only pay that license, but now pay lawyer fees because my lawyers are actively looking for these people. And in Alex's case, he's, he, I guess he gets like several dozen of these people per month. So his lawyers are pretty busy. And a lot of people don't really realize when they steal someone's photo, whether it's from Google or from Flickr or wherever it might be, that they are damaging that person's I guess, livelihood in to an extent. You know, recently I've had someone steal a full course of mine and upload it to Udemy. Oh, that's exciting. People, yeah, people, I mean, you had this exact same thing happen. <laughs> um, people steal my YouTube videos all the time and re-upload them. And I, I usually contact these people just myself and I tell them, listen, you can't be doing this. First of all, it's illegal. Second of all, it takes away from my business and reduces my income and they get very defensive. They're like, well, I'm just sharing it with the world. I'm just trying to promote my own brand. I'm like, that's not how this works. You are taking away from my income and I have bills to pay. And by you uploading my full course to Udemy, you know, you potentially earned $14,000 with that course right. that is, should have been in my pocket. 
Um, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting so, things that Alex points out in the Q and A, um, he does talk about kind of you know uh, he photographs a lot of bugs. He's an entomologist. Um, you yeah. know, he talks about you know I, I spent a lot of money. Uh, and time researching and waiting to get these photos, you know, for my trip to Argentina uh, or wherever to photograph this or that insect and, and the interactions they have with leaves or whatever. Um, and uh, he talks about that, that also it's it's sometimes difficult to even have a, you know, a shot at doing any of this stuff um, in developing countries like, you know, uh, he, I think he uses Vietnam as an example where they don't have, you know, these copyright laws and things where he has a legal leg to stand on. You're kind of just, you know, I mean, what are you going to do, you know? Um, so, you know, when it comes to the people who he can really go after, um, you know, he really takes the time and makes the effort to go after them. Um, and, you know, I mean, he talks about things like it really doesn't matter if, you know, if this person using his work uses it and then takes it down, you know, the, the point is the work has been used and the licensing fee is now owed. Um, you know, you've used his work to, you know, promote your brand or to market your company or your product or whatever. There's the licensing fee that he would normally charge, you know, and he said that normally, whatever, most image licensing fees are pretty inexpensive, 100 to 400 bucks, I think is the, the, the price bracket that he sort of quotes in there. Um, and then once it gets used, then there's all kinds of, as, as you mentioned, Howard, all these legal fees that get incurred. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's definitely stealing when you go and take somebody's work, um, without paying for it. Uh, so, you know, I can understand, you know, where Alex's point, where he's coming from, but it was, yeah, it was definitely just an interesting article. Definitely something worth reading if you're a, a logo designer or a, a stock artist or a photographer or anything like that, where you, or even a, a, somebody who's making tutorials and online videos where things like that can, you know, be taken and now sold on, on outlets like Udemy or, or wherever, really on just your own website. Um, definitely something that's quite interesting. Yeah, and based on some of the, the questions and answers that he posts on this article and on his website, and based on things that I've seen all around the web, it still seems like a good, a good chunk of people do not believe that photographers or writers or people who make YouTube videos can make a living off this stuff. And, you know, obviously someone like Alex is making a very good living taking photos of bugs. He's probably, he probably sells them to... I don't know, companies who do things with bugs. I don't know yeah. what, what he does. But the point is, photographers and writers definitely can make a living. And when you steal someone's work online, you post it for your own benefit on your website, it definitely takes away from their income. Right, yeah, because I mean, he does mention, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a photo. He says, no, it's not just a photo. Right. You know, there's a lot that goes into making the photo and, you know, and, and, and you know, aren't you sort of betraying that it's not just a whatever when you're the one stealing? I mean, if it's, if it's so minuscule and such a nothing thing, why didn't you just make one yourself? Do you know what I mean? Right, exactly. So, yeah. I would love to see, sometimes when someone responds to my videos, my one minute Photoshop tutorials, and when I say, you know, it takes you know, mostly a full day to create one of these videos. And they say, oh, how, how does it take a full day? It's only a one minute video. And I respond, you know, go create your own at the same quality and same everything that is in this video and then we'll talk. Mm -hmm. And it's the same case for Alex. I'm sure each one of those photos, the end result probably takes hours upon hours to get the right photo, the right bug and the right pose with the right depth of field and the right this and that. And then he has to edit them and import them and all this stuff. These things take time and even, you know, it's one photo, but it could take a full day to 
produce. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, if you've ever seen their documentaries and things about like the the BBC photographers, National Geographic photographers who are, you know, it'll take months to get the the one shot of that leopard that they're chasing on the, you yeah. know, on the savanna or the jungles of Africa or wherever, you know what I mean? Um fascinating stuff, but yeah. So uh, the next article here, of course, you can't go through the week of April 1st with at least without including at least one April Fool's article. And but I thought this was kind of a cool idea. Um the smart boy, yeah, this was... you know, converting the iPhone 6 into a working Game Boy. Um I thought it was kind of neat uh and a cool idea and depending on what the price point would be, I would absolutely see something like this being an accessory that is sellable. I totally would. So what this guy did, I guess is his company named Smart Boy, maybe? Um, he created this game working Game Boy case for the iPhone 6. And you slide your iPhone in there, and then you slide a, cart, a Game Boy cartridge into this case, and it has all the same buttons like a Game Boy has. And he released it to his Facebook page, I believe, as an April Fool's joke. But at the same time, in the back of his mind, he wanted to see what the reaction would be. And that would determine whether or not he would actually develop this thing and turn it into an actual product. And people went bonkers over this thing. As a gamer myself and someone who has used the original Game Boy way back in the day, I would totally buy something like this if this was actually a thing. So he loved the reaction and apparently he's going to be actually developing this thing into a real product. Now, here's the thing that I don't think a lot of people are are seeing is... Obviously, this thing looks like a Game Boy. It functions like a Game Boy. It plays Game Boy games on an iPhone. This is just asking for legal trouble. <laughs> now, I did see a few comments that saying that Nintendo no longer has the trademark on the Game Boy design because it's over 25 years old or something like that. Hmm. I don't know what it was. But I can guarantee you that Nintendo's lawyers will respond to this thing if it does become an actual thing. Yeah. He- and mainly because Nintendo recently teamed up where they announced that they're going to be working with DENA. It's a some sort of a publisher. And they're finally, finally, after years, they're going to dive into the whole mobile phone world. They're going to be de- developing, uh, I guess, iPhone and Android games for, obviously, <laughs> Android and iPhone phones. Um, which is something they should have done so Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that like, that's Nintendo's forte. I mean, when you think about them, I mean, I don't think of the GameCube. I don't think of the Wii. I think of the old Nintendo 64, almost 8-bit looking games. You know, when I go to my grandparents' house and they'd be like, you know, kids, we got this console, you know, and they'd pull this thing out and it's just the candy bar controllers, you know, and you're playing these very old games, you know, you're jumping your guy from platform to platform and, you know, their whole Mario Brothers, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, so many of those things, I mean, just imagine those games on the iPhone, um, you know, polished in, in sort of the Nintendo way. Um, I mean, start with like a library of classic titles, right? Wouldn't that be the first thing to do? And that would be exactly. Crazy. See, three years ago, I wrote an article on my website. And if you search Iceflow Studios, Nintendo plea, I think, um, I basically wrote this article on why they should get into the mobile world. And why it was it would be stupid not to. And Nintendo didn't respond to me, but they responded in general to people asking for mobile games. And they said, well, it would hurt 
are 3DS and it would hurt the Wii and it would hurt the new games. And they're, they're completely missing the point. We don't want those new games on our iPhone. We want the old game. We want the original Pokemon Red and Blue on the iPhone. We want the original Mario games. And this could be such an opportunity to market their new stuff. Imagine playing the original Pokemon games on your iPhone, reliving what you, you lived like 10, 15 years ago and then once you end it, or even, you know, on the home screen, it says, you know, get even more Pokemon with the 3DS and Pokemon Black or Blue or whatever the, right. the new ones are. I mean, but I think there's a huge marketing potential for that. I mean, that. isn't that so stupid? You know, we, we, it's going to hurt the Nintendo DS. How many times have you been at the airport and you've seen people, you know, businessmen pull out their Nintendo DS and sit there and play a game? You know what I mean? <laughs> Everybody has their smartphones out. Everybody. You know, accepting yep. a very select few. You know, nobody has, you know, PlayStation PSPs and, you know, Nintendo DS and, you know, all of these other handheld consoles uh, or whatever you're going to call them. Everyone has their phones out. And, you know, a lot of times the airport internet connections are spotty. Um, I mean, or, you know, on, on a long train ride or what? I mean, all kinds of things where you would, or on an airplane, when you actually get onto the airplane. Um, you know, all of that stuff I would think would be, I don't see how there couldn't be a bigger market for that than, um, you know, trying to market and sell a standalone, uh, mobile gaming device that somebody has to keep in their pocket. And the sole purpose of that device is to play a game. Yeah. And now's the perfect time. Someone like myself, I'm 28. I played the original Game Boy, uh, you know, Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue, in an instant, if Nintendo came out, even without the whole case thing, if they just said Pokemon Red and Blue, the original Pokemons, were on the iPhone right now for $10, $15, there wouldn't even be a question. Myself and millions of others who are in our age range who played those games originally when they came out would instantly buy those things. Really, price wouldn't even be an option. I would just buy it. It doesn't even matter have. what it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So... Definitely an interesting thing uh, for an April Fool's gag or whatever. Um, I just thought my initial reaction when I saw it was it looks really cool. Um, and it, it would does, be the yeah. kind of thing because it's using your iPhone screen as like the old Game Boy screen. But you've got the old Game Boy uh, console or hand holdable or whatever you're going to call it. Um, I just thought it looked really cool and it looked like the functionality was pretty neat um, and all of that. But... Moving on from that to something a little bit more modern when it comes to uh, mobile devices, Adobe Comp CC, uh, which Adobe says is the best thing to happen to layout ideation, idea creation, uh, really is kind of the word they're morphing together, since the cocktail napkin. Uh, so Adobe recently released this new mobile app uh, called Comp CC. Uh, which is going to allow you to create mock-ups by drawing out shapes and lines, placeholder text, adding images, things like that, and then send those designs straight to Illustrator, InDesign, or Photoshop uh, with a single click. So, you know, if you can imagine you've got your iPad or your Android tablet and you're sitting down with a client or something and you just start sketching out with your stylus, um, you know, hey, we would put your banner header here and, you know, a Twitter feed and an Instagram feed and your main content and your marketing drive would go here and all that kind of thing. Uh, you can create these mock-ups very, very quickly um, with CompCC and it looks like it's – it looks like – I haven't used the, the app. 
Um, but it looks like it when you draw out a square, for instance, it's going to make that like a perfect square, right? And it's yeah, going to. And you can draw out like a line and it'll add like a lorem ipsum text. And you can draw like a few lines and it'll add a paragraph, which is really cool because most people, when they're designing a website or a brochure or whatever it might be, you just kind of want to sketch something out so you know what, what's going where. And. A lot of times you're not on your at your desk or you don't have a napkin in front of you. And even if you do have a napkin, you draw it on the napkin, you have to redo it later on when you get home. But with Adobe, um, what is this thing called? Comp. Adobe Comp CC, you can just whip out your iPad. You can actually draw out the whole website right there. And then literally with a click or a tap or whatever it might be, you can send it directly to Illustrator or Photoshop or InDesign. Everything is there exactly how you how you designed it on the iPad. And that's, you know, one of the advantages of the Creative Cloud is you have your asset library and you have syncing and you can just continue working right from there and you can go back and forth. Yeah, I mean, it definitely looks really cool. And it looks neat too, even if you're not working on an active concept or something, if you're just sort of playing around with websites thinking, you know, someday I'm going to update my own um, and you're just messing around, what's going to be the, you know, what's going to be a, a cool and creative layout that's going to be very different, but still easy to use and easy for people to recognize um, and doable. Um, it seems like it's, you know, it'd be a very quick and easy way to sort of set all that up and get a, a an even more solid idea of what it's going to look like. Cause it, you know, everything can be set to proper proportion. Uh, you know, when you're drawing your little squares and things like that, they're clicking to more real sharp edged squares, the way that you would see them, you know, and things like that. It looks like a neat little tool. I didn't see, did you see if, uh, it's, it, it costs anything or is it just something that's available? No, for I believe it's all free. Um, all, I believe all of Adobe's mobile apps now are free. Uh, some of them you have to have a Creative Cloud membership in order to actually use it gotcha. or sync. Okay. But I mean, again, it's like ten bucks a month for Adobe Creative Cloud. So right. and all these apps are syncing with it. You have your asset libraries and everything. Yeah. So just a really neat app, and if you're into, I would say web design or even just layout design, um, definitely. And by layout design, I just mean you know if you're designing a wedding invitation or a brochure or something, it looks like it would even be useful um, for stuff like that. Anywhere where you're going to have sort of that framework layout, definitely a cool looking app. Adobe Comp CC. Uh, looks like it's definitely worth checking out. Yep. And then in, in uh, and continuing with our discussion on new apps, there was actually a new app that's in preview right now. It's called Noiseless and Noiseless Pro by MacFun, who has a bunch of other standalone apps that mimic technology in Photoshop mm. and Lightroom and things like that. And Noiseless, as you can probably guess, is an application that allows you to reduce the amount of noise in your photos. And it does an absolutely fantastic job. I used it last night for a little bit. And by the way, we're recording this Friday morning. We, we're going to record it last night, but we got caught up with stuff. We usually record Thursday nights. Um, so I was using it last night and comparing it to Lightroom. Mm -hmm. And the noise reduction on this standalone app is really amazing. It allows you to reduce the noise, both luminance and color noise, and keep the detail. And it has... A nice amount of presets, you know, from light to lightest to extreme to strong, balanced, soft, and all that fun stuff. If you just want like a one-click solution, but you can also go into the adjust mode and you can adjust everything uh, individually. So you can adjust the structure or you can adjust what else do they have? The luminance right, and color noise, also the detail. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Is it a is uh, so, Mac or PC or just Mac? Right now, it's just Mac. Okay. I believe most of their software is just mm -hmm. Mac. Yeah. Um, 
I guess Mac Fun is the company name. Um, I so it'll probably just be Mac. They're actually going to have two versions now. Right now, you can buy Noiseless for eighteen dollars. By the way, this is not an ad. We just came across this yesterday. Um, or you can buy Noiseless Pro for forty dollars as the pre-order special. Now after that, Noiseless goes up to twenty dollars, I believe, and then. Noiseless Pro goes up to $60. So if you are in, if you don't have Lightroom or Photoshop, and it does come with a Photoshop or Lightroom plugin. Now, my opinion on this is if you don't have Lightroom or Photoshop, this is a great application to get if you're looking to reduce noise, if you're shooting in low light so, situations. And, and real quick to interrupt you, it, it is just yep. for reducing noise. I wouldn't be able to go in and adjust, uh, you know, general sharpness and, you know, curves and exposure and contrast, things like that. Oh, let me, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. So noiseless, the one that's for $18 now, $20 after it's available is just noise and it's for like smartphones and JPEGs. Noiseless Pro also comes with raw editing capabilities. So you can adjust your exposure, contrast, mm -hmm. shadows, highlights, all that stuff. So if you want like a full package raw editing suite with amazing noise reduction, again, this is not an advertisement. I know it sounds like one. Um, that is $40 now, $60 or $70. I think it's $70 when it's available. Right for the public. Um, now, if you do have Lightroom now, or if you do have Photoshop with Camera Raw, I don't personally see a need for this, but if you don't have either of those, I think this is a great solution. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, I mean, it looks cool, it looks interesting, um, but yeah, I mean, if it's just, I haven't bought a, a standalone noise reduction plugin in years. Um, but that's been mainly because the noise reduction in Lightroom, uh, camera raw sharpening and noise reduction still aren't the greatest. Um, but Lightroom has gotten a lot, lot, lot better. Um, but still, I mean, if it's, I mean, I guess for still 40 bucks or 60 bucks, you said it is full retail. Um, you know, that, that's, that's still kind of a steep price, but I mean, that's over half of just Lightroom as a standalone application, correct? Or Lightroom cost yeah. without a, uh, when, when you used to be able to get Lightroom outside of CC subscription, <laughs> that's what Lightroom used to be about a hundred bucks, right? I think you can still get Lightroom without um, Creative Cloud subscription. Oh, gotcha, okay. I think it's one of the, I think it's the only application you can still get that because photographers, um, some photographers only use Lightroom, so that's the option that's available to them. Gotcha, okay. All right, so with that, we're moving on to a few questions we got this week. Um, and again, if you want to share or ask questions, you can ask questions on Twitter to myself at Tutvid or Howard at Iceflow Studios. Make sure you use the hashtag WeGeeks and we'll see your questions. Um, I usually try to post something on Facebook as well every week asking for questions. Uh, so the first uh, question is from Lamb underscore Nathan on Twitter. He says, help. How do you deal with how do you deal with I guess and pass through roadblocks when working on projects? When do you call it quits? Never, never call it quits. Yeah, I was going to... I actually find, I've run into a lot of roadblocks, whether it be web design or graphic design or even just at my job, my day job at work, roadblocks are going to hit you all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you keep quitting on your roadblocks, you're never going to actually get better at whatever you're doing. Right. You know, if I, when I was first started designing my website way back in the day, I ran into a lot of roadblocks because I didn't really know HTML or CSS that well. So certain things that I envisioned or designed in Photoshop, I weren't, wasn't able to actually 
do on in WordPress or Dreamweaver or whatever it might be. And if I would have just stopped and not looked for solutions, then my website probably wouldn't exist and a lot of other things wouldn't exist. So I would say in terms of roadblocks is keep at it. Even though, even if you're, you're not doing it all day, every day, you know, a few hours a day, just kind of work on it, research some solutions, start learning, grab a book, see if you can improve little by little every single day. Um, and, and just keep going that way. Yeah. I mean, and if, uh, if the roadblock is something like, um, I, I, I'm spending this money on advertising and I'm not getting jobs from it. Um, again, uh, one of my problems is I, I don't, I probably hang on to projects and things that I'm going after a little bit too long. Um, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I do that. But um, I, I mean, I usually, I've called it quits on a couple projects that I've worked on, um, and it usually gets to the point where either the support isn't there from you know the people, not not necessarily from a money making side of things. I don't think I've ever quit on a project because money wasn't there. Um, projects that I've called it quits on are if I'm working on something and I feel like the backing support isn't there from either sponsors or companies who are asking me to do something, then I'll say, look, I can't do this anymore. It's not worth the time that I'm putting into it. I would rather invest my time in something else that's going to be, uh, there's going to be a little bit more of a return, whether or not that's just people who enjoy what it is that I'm doing or sponsors who get involved or customers who are getting involved. Um, so, I mean, the way that the way that I deal with and pass through roadblocks I run into is just grit, you know, and determination. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to let this stop me. It might slow me down, but I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm going to figure out a way around it. And I mean, it's difficult to give an exact, uh, like, here's how to deal with every roadblock because it's more of a mentality thing. You know what I mean? Either every roadblock is different. Every roadblock is going to be circumvented in a different way. Um, it's just, you know, what's what's between your ears? What, you know, are, are you going to, re- are you really going at this full bore? Are you giving it your all? Are you not willing to give up? You know what I mean? I mean, the way that uh, a U.S. Navy SEAL is going to circumvent a roadblock is different than a coder is going to circumvent a roadblock when it comes to developing an application. Two totally different things. However, the mindset of I'm going to get this job done, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to make it out of this, it's this kind of the same mindset. So it's all about the mindset, and it's just a mindset of grit. Uh, you know, you're absolutely determined. You're not going to let anything stop you or get in your way. Um, so I think that's what it is. I think uh, one of the ways that you deal with and pass through roadblocks is not thinking about when to call it quits. For instance, you know, when it's time to call it quits, um, it it, ma- it makes itself pretty clear. Um, you know, as far as this just isn't going the way that I initially envisioned it going, and it's not going a, a direction that's better than I initially envisioned. You know, you sit down to start working on a project. A lot of times, you have you know either a dream in mind or an end goal in mind. I want to create a YouTube channel that has a hundred thousand subscribers, or I want to get five thousand views every video that I upload, or or fifty thousand views every video I upload, or I want to create a website that you know gets X amount of interaction, or has this kind of newsletter subscription list or whatever, uh, you have all that stuff in mind. So when it gets to the point that you're spending an incredible amount of time and resources and it's just not working, I mean, you either need to do a serious audit of yourself and figure out what it is you're doing right or wrong, or 
you know, that's when I would sit there and say, all right, this, this isn't going unexpectedly well. It's going unexpectedly bad and I can't figure out what's wrong. Am I going to keep spending time and money, you know, trying to sort of pump up something that's not really there to be pumped up? That being said, I do think there's a market for just about anything. So I, I would say you're doing something wrong and you need to take a serious and honest look at yourself and a serious and honest look at the marketplace and figure out what can I do to adjust. I mean, Howard, you and I have been through this a bajillion times over with our tutorials. The the marketplace for the tutorials has changed incredibly since we've started. Oh, so much, so much. And so. like we're still going, you know what I mean? I'm not in a position where I'm ready to give up. I've slowed down a lot. Um, but I don't even want to be going as slow as I'm going. Do you know what I mean? Um, so within me, the hunger and the determination is still there. It's just been a, a, a very lengthy process of figuring out which direction is best to go and committing to something, you know, for six months to for 12 months, uh, something like that. So that's what I would say. I would say it's all about the mindset and the mentality. Don't give up, you know, grit. We, you need to be gritty and you need to be, uh, tough. Totally. Yep. So the next question is from Caleb Surface on Twitter. Would you be able to explain your photography and Lightroom slash Photoshop workflow? I think, Hashtag. I think that's Caleb Surface. Caleb, what did I say? Caleb. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just you with names. But anyway, go ahead. I'll let you take this one. Yeah, I'll start this one. You're more of a photographer than I am, so you can probably go more in depth. But for me, uh, when if in the rare case I am out and actually taking photos with an actual camera, or even if, if it's my iPhone, I'll always import my photos into Lightroom because I love the structure of Lightroom. I love being able to sort things into collections and uh, smart collections and all that fun stuff. And then for any basic processing, like exposure, <clears throat> contrast, shadows, clarity, which I absolutely love, or noise reduction, I'll do all that in Lightroom. And then anything that I can't do in Lightroom, like composition or adding text or anything advanced, I'll bring that into Photoshop and then I'll save it back into Lightroom. When you, um, uh, quick question, when you export from Lightroom, are you exporting as a JPEG or a TIFF or a PSD? How do you usually do that? Um, well, in terms of exporting, if I'm just exporting it for the web, I'll probably export it as a JPEG. But if I'm, what's the, if I'm transferring it to Photoshop to continue editing, right. That I believe you have the option in the preferences to export, uh, to transfer it or import it, whatever they call it, as um, uh, DNG or a PSD. You can set that in the preferences. Right, okay. Uh, and then when you save it, it saves right back into Lightroom and it contains, it, it keeps all the raw properties and all that fun stuff. Gotcha. Okay. Um, a lot of people ask me what I think of or why I use Lightroom over Bridge, and the easy answer is I I hate Bridge. I don't know why, I just like Lightroom. I like the organizational structure mm -hmm. and I just don't like Bridge. That's just my personal opinion. I know some people who live by Bridge and absolutely love it. I don't. So in, in short, that's my workflow. I import into Lightroom, do my raw edits in Lightroom, transfer to Photoshop if needed, and then save it back into Lightroom. Yeah. I've only just started using Lightroom in the last few months. I mean, I ha I've had it for years since it first came out. I bought it when it first came out. Um, and I dabbled in it and I would, you know, every once in a while do a few shoots, process them through Lightroom. Um, but I'd always really stuck with, I mean, I mean bridge, I, not really bridge though. I, I, have used bridge as like file organization, but you know, it's basically like the OS finder. Um, you know, so it's just, 
you know, it's just like a more robust version of that. But with that robustness comes like a certain heaviness and it's slow and things like that. Um, so that kind of stuff's really annoying. And I've actually kind of, I mean, I've used Bridge almost every day for five years. And over the past six months or so, maybe three, three, four months, really, I've really started getting away from using Bridge um, in general. It's just kind of... Um, you know, I don't know, it's just big and clunky and slow. You know, nothing's more annoying when you open, go to open files and, and bridge is just like, oh, I'm taking my time. Um, so yeah, I've been using Lightroom lately. Um, and basically, you know, I'll offload images from my camera through my card reader uh, onto my hard drive first where I can back them up. And I will then import from that folder. So I create what I what I call a Lightroom reference folder. That's um, not an official name or anything. That's just what I call it. So when I when I when I let's say I'm photographing, you know, Jack Bauer or something, right? So I'll create the client folder for Jack Bauer, and within his folder, I'll create another folder called Lightroom Ref or Lightroom Reference or whatever. And into that folder, I'll import my images from the card. And then I'll link that folder to uh, Lightroom. So you just just like you're importing anything else in the Lightroom, you're just selecting that folder as your source folder, if you will. Um, so I'll go ahead and do that, and I'll import to Lightroom, and I will make all of my edits and things like that in Lightroom. And then usually, if there's further editing needed in Photoshop, um, well, and, and by the way, the reason that I'm getting away from Camera Raw and moving to Lightroom is simply because the noise reduction and the sharpening are far and away better in Lightroom. I actually am looking to get away from Lightroom, if I'm being honest, because I want to do everything in Capture One, a Capture One Pro, which has the most amazing sharpening engine uh, that you're ever going to find. So it's really uh, an incredible piece of software. It's expensive, um, but it's really, really great, and it really gives your photos that uh, very high-end, very medium format uh, look, uh, which is something that I'm kind of after mm. in my post-production when it comes to finishing. Um, so I'll, I'll start with toning and things like that in Lightroom, uh, some sharpening, things like that. And then I'll just, yeah, I'll open those photos right in Photoshop, and that's when I'll begin processing. And when I'm in Photoshop, my, my, my basic retouching workflow is I like to do the retouching, that is correcting skin blemishes, you know, flyaway hairs, colors, uh, on clothing, that is. You know, anything like that, anything that needs to be adjusted as far as the content of the photo, I like to do that first. Then I like to go ahead and apply a first round of just light sharpening. Then I'll go ahead and do any of the heavier retouching if I'm, you know, retouching, uh, adding or uh, adding or removing big elements in the photo. Um, I'll do that at that point, and then that's when I go ahead and I begin to do the toning, color changing, um, you know, shifting colors. You know, if the sky color needs to be adjusted. I'll do all that kind of adjusting. Then gradient maps and curves adjustments. Then I'll do dodging and burning on top of that. If I'm going to do dodging and burning uh, with that particular image. And then lastly, if the image needs it, and usually it needs a little bit, I'll go ahead and uh, do some selective sharpening. So I'm not going to do a global sharpening adjustment at that point, something that affects the entire image, but rather just, you know, hey, this person's eyes need to be sharpened up or the lips need to be sharpened up or the hair needs to be sharpened up or maybe the ruffles in the clothing or whatever it is. Um, I'll do it at that point. Um, and then, you know, I'm ready to export the image at that point, you know, export out a TIFF or a, a large resolution JPEG or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the basic workflow that I have for Lightroom and Photoshop. Cool. So our last question is from Gero Julio. And he says, what is the best video editing software in the market right now and why? Uh, it's hard for me to answer this because I don't do very much video editing. 
Um, my, my tutorials are created in ScreenFlow, but I do dabble in After Effects a little bit now that I'm using a green screen for my intros and outros. And I think After Effects is fantastic, but if you've never used it before, it is so overwhelming. But I guess you can probably say the same thing for any professional video editing software, whether it's After Effects or Premiere or Final Cut. Is After, After Effects is a very different kind of video editor than something like Premiere Pro, though. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't even know that I would lump right. them into the same thing because After Effects is almost like the Photoshop for video, right? That's true. You can add a lot more special effects and things like that. If you're just looking for video editing, then probably Premiere is right more or sony vegas is yeah more sony vegas sony vegas is pretty good premiere pro i do everything in premiere pro right now but yeah like you said ScreenFlow, they have a built-in video editor for i mean that's just screenshot or, or uh, screen recordings excuse me um uh what's apple's final cut pro uh is yep. is great um I think it comes. My movie is terrible. I mean, I think it comes down to personal preference. Well, yes, yeah, so it was Windows Movie Maker. Um, <laughs> I think it comes down to personal preference, right? I mean, I, I just had my sister over. For, I mean, she just left this afternoon. She stayed for a couple of days working on our wedding video, um, and she had never used Premiere Pro before. But I don't have Final Cut Pro, so she's over on the iMac here in my living room, and she was working on Premiere Pro. Um, you know, and she basically figured it out from, you know, two, two and a half days ago. I mean, there were things like video transitions and things like that. She couldn't quite figure out right away, but I showed her how to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would say is final cut cheaper than premiere pro. Do you want to uh, do you know what final cut costs? Uh, premiere's probably premiere's got to be cheaper now, I guess, because it's part of CC and you can get it for the monthly subscription. Right. So, I mean, because of that, I would say premiere pro just accessibility wise, it's going to be easier for you to go from no video editor to video editor. So I would say premiere pro I've used Sony Vegas. I don't mind Sony Vegas. Um, but I do know that my best video editing has been done, uh, with premiere pro. And then I would also quickly add to that look into, there's a piece of software called DaVinci Resolve, uh, DaVinci as in Leonardo, uh, DaVinci Resolve, uh, it's a color grading application, very powerful, very robust, it's like $30,000 for the full, you know, color board and piece of software, but they have, I think it's called DaVinci Resolve Lite for free. Um, and you can go download it. I use it pretty much for all of my color grading. If I'm working on a video project for a client, um, it allows you to get you know additional sharpness in your video and just the way you can work with the color wheels to really grade and color your video. You can go for very high-end looking production video or you can go for like very cinematic looking video. There's a lot of stuff you can do. It's not it doesn't have the same plastic feeling effects that something like uh, Final Cut or Premiere Pro would have. Both of them sort of add video effects to uh, a video track in a much different way. DaVinci Resolve is working on a very deep level. It's a it's a big application to run. Um, it sucks up a lot of RAM. It works with, you know, kind of the closer to RAW that you can shoot your video, the better. And DaVinci can work with all that stuff. Um, but yeah, DaVinci Resolve and then exporting color graded clips to be edited in Premiere Pro or if it's a big project, lining up and editing everything in Premiere Pro and then exporting those clips individually and color grading them in uh, DaVinci uh, would be how I would you know recommend you go about video editing. But again, I'm not 
by no means am I a professional video editor. It's not something that I do all the time. I edit a couple videos a month and tutorials, I don't really count them as video editing. That's just, you know, timeline editing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Cutting and pasting here and there, adding an intro, adding an outro, you know, adding little, you know, fade in, fade out things for hotkeys or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would, I would, my, my personal preference is Premiere Pro. Um, but you know, between Premiere Pro and something like Final Cut or Sony Vegas, it, I would say it's really just personal preference because I mean, you can have amazing content being created by any of them. Um, so yeah, Premiere Pro is what I would say. There you go. And that will just about wrap it up for our questions this week. Our $25 Amazon or iTunes winner is... Who are you thinking? Lamb? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of yeah. feeling lamb. Yeah. If I had to go... Yeah, I'm feeling lamb as well. Yeah, if I had to go right off my gut feel. So lamb, lamb underscore Nathan, if that is in fact your yep. real name. Shoot me, a, shoot me a tweet on Twitter or through my Facebook page and I will get in contact with you. And again, if you have... Li- or if you have submitted questions to previous episodes and you haven't listened to them, you should probably listen to them because there, there's been a few gift cards that we haven't given out because the winners have not got in contact with me. Last week's winner did get in contact with me and he did get his gift card. Hey, hey. So make sure to keep submitting your questions because we'll be doing this every single week. And that will just about do That'll it. That'll just about wrap it up, yeah. So another, another week, another episode. We're eight deep now. That's super cool. Um... And yeah, we're still. I, I still feel like we're getting the feel for this whole thing. You know what I mean? Getting the hang of it, feeling more natural on the intros, a little more natural on the outros. Um, getting there. And the workflow back end side of it's taking us less and less time to really get everything together and and processed and all that good stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's 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 a lot of fun and to you know just take the time every week and you know sit down for an hour or two and, and bang out a podcast. Uh, yeah, and we'll be back uh, next week. We'll probably be recording this next Thursday night and actually at Thursday, well I guess it would be Friday at 12.01 in the morning or I guess 1.01 in the morning my time the Apple Watch goes on pre-order so I will be definitely awake at that time so we'll be gotcha. probably recording and then I'll just stay awake and re- order my Apple are you getting an Apple Watch? I don't know, I mean I probably should um, the more I look at it like we've said it looks like the kind of thing that if I get it it'll be pretty awesome um, but I don't know There's, there's I feel still feel like I need to justify it a little bit um, oh, I'm totally in that in that same boat as you. I, I feel like I, think, I feel like I will, but I don't know if I'll be a pre-orderer. You know, I might end up getting okay. one like midway through summer or something. Um, cause yeah. it just seems to be how I go. I've never been one to wait in line for an iPhone or anything like that. I always just wait till the hubbub's over and then go pick one up later on. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna get it just for the sake of getting it, just to see what it's all about, feel it out. Hopefully, hopefully it has some benefit. Yeah. So I guess that'll be it for episode eight. Wrap this thing that'll up. Be it. And, uh, Thanks again to Squarespace and Valdez for, uh, for their sponsor and Valdez over at <laughs> patreon.com slash WeGeeks. And you can save 10% over at Squarespace with coupon code WeGeeks. We'll see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody.